What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. And I'm Lilith. And Buttercup is back! Yay! Yay! <laughs> yeah. I have so much to talk about, but we have a guest today, so we're going to focus on our guest, but I'll do the update episode later. Yeah, we have an awesome guest today. Yes, our guest today is Ellie Arrow, a sex trade abolitionist and educator. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for you know, for coming on the show and for speaking with us. I've personally been really excited to get you on because of all your work around the discourse on the sex trade and sex work as well. So did you want to just give us a bit more information about your background? Yeah, sure. So I'm Ellie Arrow. I'm a feminist activist from Germany, and my main subject is the sex trade. So that's prostitution, pornography, stripping, all these go together. They overlap. And many people know in Germany, it's all legal, basically. Brothel owning, escort agency owning, sex work management, some people like to call it. So basically pimps? Yeah, that's the huge debate. Is there like an ethical, can you ethically manage the sex trade, yes or no? Oh my gosh. Well, I think some people might notice as well in recent years, Germany sort of gained a bad reputation, like the press in Europe, they call us the brothel of Europe. And it's often regarded as a failure and actually an exploded market and a lot of human rights abuses. And that's what I found when I looked at it. So that's both just reading material from researchers, from the government, from police. And then over the years, I had a chance to speak to a lot of survivors of the sex trade. I've also spoken to women who consider themselves sex workers. So I think we can learn something from them as well. But my stance at the end of the day, this industry is so overwhelmingly exploitative that it can't be reformed. It can't be made ethical. And examples like Germany or New Zealand, I can speak to that as well, show that. Nice. So can you tell us a bit more about what's going on in Germany where, you know, the sex trade is basically legal because we see or there are arguments that, you know, making it legal will make it safer for sex workers and it will just make it a safer industry. So it'll be really interesting to see if that has been the case in Germany or has it been the case in Germany? Yeah, so that's a really big question, but maybe we can start with a little bit of the history. So there's a misconception that prostitution was legalized in, well, about 20 years ago in Germany. But really, and this is the case for many countries across the globe, an acceptance towards the sex trade has been in basically every patriarchal culture from the beginning. And an acceptance of the sex trade does not equal an acceptance of the sex seller. Those are two very different things. So just sex buying as a part of male culture, you know, soldiers or craftsmen or kings. There's one infamous case that people should know about in Germany, the Council of Constance. It was called in the Middle Ages when there were like three popes at the time and when we're trying to figure out who's the true pope and they all got together in the city of Constance for several years to discuss this and they hired a huge number of women to service them as prostitutes during this time. So it's also a misconception that, you know, men of the church were always anti this industry. We have this view today, the left wing, you know, is pro industry and the right is anti, but it's way more complex. So in Germany, there's a long history of tolerance for brothel keeping. So some of the streets where we have brothels today, brothels have been there for hundreds of years. And uh, really what happened about 20 years ago was that they abolished uh, the mandatory 
health inspections of women, where there's a very long, ugly history in many countries, Britain too, I believe the US as well, where they forced women to undergo medical exams that weren't even necessarily always scientifically sound and that were invasive. I mean, you have to strip down for a doctor and, and, and these kinds of things. So we finally ab abolished that just 20 years ago and then also clarified, yes, a brothel keeper is an employer and uh, a woman in the brothel or escorting or street, uh, she's a worker and this is a business. And this is supposed to give women rights. Like, for example, theoretically on paper, she can take a John to court if he doesn't pay. And that sounds really good. But in practice, in prostitution, the John always pays up front because the chance that later on he's going to say, oh, I didn't feel like that service was good enough or like I didn't come or whatever. So give me my money back. That kind of situation happens all the time. So she wants the money up front to not have to fight him over the payment. And it's a fight she's unlikely to win as well, most likely, even if she did. Yes. I heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not, that if you're unemployed in Germany, that, you know, you have to be applying for jobs and, you know, that women who are unemployed are, you know, being given adverts for to be uh, prostitutes and brothels, for example. And so are there any examples of, first of all, I don't know if that's true or not, but are there any examples of where classifying it as a worker can actually be harmful to women and can actually expose them to more coercion? Yeah, there are both these examples of supposed rights that exist on paper that don't actually help, that are not practical. And also these harmful knock-on effects, there's tons of those. And so several women had to go to court to prevent exactly what you said from happening. So there were some cases of women, unemployed women who were offered by the job office, you could go and work in that brothel. Some of it was stripping, some of it was prostitution, some of it was like being a barmaid. So the job office would say, well, we're not making her a prostitute herself. It's just barmaid work. But the women say, well, it's an unsafe environment. Even as a barmaid, I'm exposed to, you know, nudity and harassment and lewd comments and all this. I don't want this. And the courts thankfully upheld their rights not to have to take these jobs. But someone had to go to court first. Whenever this happens, we can assume that there are other women who didn't even know that they had this option of protesting. So we don't know 100%, but I would assume that some women entered the sex trade because they thought they had to. And only after these court decisions were the job offices discouraged from doing this. But it might still be going on to some extent. And it could still come back as well, especially, you know, legal precedents can be overturned, for example, Roe versus Wade. So even that's, it's not a guarantee that it's forever going to remain, you know, struck down by the courts as well, which is really scary for women. Yeah. And some people have suggested that prostitution should be, if it's a job like any other, then you should be able to do like a traineeship or what we have in Germany. I don't know if you have it in other countries. It's called Girls Day. It's actually now for girls and boys. Like you spend a day doing a mini internship, you know, as a, as a teenager, a high schooler. Yeah, we have that in the UK. Yeah. We have like a week where you're an intern somewhere. Yeah. Like work experience. So some voices from the pro-prostitution lobby have suggested that it should be possible to do that in a brothel. And that would, you know, be making it equal and that be destigmatizing and things like that. And if you truly believe sex workers work, then I'm not sure what the issue is with doing that. Oh my gosh. And this is coming from the pro-sex work crowd, right? Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know that 
if you check the documents of who wrote these laws to make brothel keeping easier, unsurprisingly, there's brothel owner associations in there. And especially after the law, they can do lobbying quite openly. Like you can find their websites and you've got these escort agencies and brothels. Well, they have their own political movement, which is obviously you know, make it easier to open a brothel, decrease the bureaucracy on that, uh, decrease the regulations. One thing that became harder uh, post, I would call it liberalization rather than legalization, because it was legal before, just with more laws on it. For social workers or the police to enter brothels becomes harder. They got the same problem in New Zealand. They can just flat out reviews, uh, refuse entry for social workers. Social workers do these routine checkups, which again, if it's a job like any other, why are they doing this? You know, to check if does a woman need help with getting clean from a drug or whatever her, her issues might be. They can flat out refuse entry and the police needs a lot of, you know, previous investigations and evidence and a court order to enter a brothel. I mean, this is a whole huge issue in of itself. The prostitution industry hugely, hugely overlaps with the sex trafficking industry. And so a good place to traffic someone to is actually the legal brothel because the brothel keeper has all these rights and there are all these rules around uh, anonymity and trying to protect women from outing. The biggest issue for women in the sex trade is just social stigma. And we hear this from the sex workers work crowd all the time. It's just the stigma. Anonymity is a priority rather than sex trafficking prevention, which is not really an issue. That's just a conservative myth or something. And so like brothel, actually just accessing brothel papers, like the, all the paper trails in that area, if there even are any, because obviously there's payment in cash and there's ATMs outside brothels because a lot of these men are married and you don't want it showing up in your bank statements. But anyway, for them, it's best if there is as little oversight as possible. And really the whole sex workers work movement has this narrative of stigma is the most harmful thing. External society is harmful, police is harmful, and there is a very shameful history of police violence, actually. So that's not made up, but they pretend like that's the biggest issue and they just forget about John and Pimp violence. And that can really flourish in an environment where you've just removed any external spectator, critical voice or intervention. So one of the things I think is woefully naive about the sex work is work feminists is that for some reason, they think the sex trade out of every other trade that exists in humanity, really that the power is going to be shifted to the workers instead of the owners and the buyers. So if you make this a legal profession, then what's to prevent brothel owners from going and lobbying Congress or the government for uh, owner-friendly laws that are exploitative to the workers, like pretty much every other industry does, right? So what I've read from people who advocate for things that are like the Nordic model, like is that basically the same thing that you said, which is that by making this illegal industry, the cops can't then monitor some of the CD activities that go in and out because they now need like, there's a higher barrier of getting a warrant to go check out if something's happening versus like, if you just know there's prostitution happening in there, you can break it up. And then also that uh, it gives a lot of power to the, both the pimps or the brothel owners and the Johns, because then they are the market and they supply the market demands and the women are the product essentially. Like, I think the way that LibFems think about it is as women as service providers and much like therapists, but that's not how it, it happens in real life because this is a desperation job that women only do when they're very desperate is that women are the product and then they have to try to mold women to be what to whatever the local appetites that men have. And as we've seen in legalized sex industries like porn, that can get really extreme really quickly if there's no like if there's no stigma and there's no reason for stopping it, like porn basically happened where wages were way down. Like the only thing that's 
kind of changed the porn industry is OnlyFans and that there's a few women who are making a lot of money like as independent. But even then, most of them started out in the traditional porn industry, which is like they got paid peanuts. One of the most famous porn models, Lana Rhodes, said she barely made six figures and she did like 80 films or something like that in like five or six months. She did like a ridiculous amount of films in a small amount of time. She barely made any money. She was coerced and, and pushed into a bunch of sex action at once, like some of which horribly traumatized her to the point where she's like, I don't think porn should be legal. Like one of the most famous porn stars ever is now like, I don't even think porn should be legal because of what happened to her. When I look at the porn industry and I look at what the effects of legalization have done, in no ways has it like put the hands in the workers and it's made a lot of like virtual brothel owners as well as like, you know, the distributor is very rich, but none of the porn stars themselves. I'm kind of wondering like why the, like the conversation never goes back to the idea like, you know, when it's illegal, it actually allows the women to have a little bit more power or at least uh, in the Nordic model where it's, it's decriminalized on their side, but criminalized on the buyer side. It allows women to have more power because then they can't be pushed into as eat readily into what the market demands. And also like the stigma keeps the Johns from being able to like lobby the government to make unfavorable laws for them. Yeah. So uh, it's really frustrating how people forget because even if you take pimping out of the picture and that's an important conversation in of itself, the market forces and poverty as a pimp or homelessness as a pimp or drug addiction as a pimp, like all of those don't disappear. And I don't think people quite realize what becomes legal. They think they're decriminalizing, you know, a woman who's got a high school degree and she speaks the language and she knows her rights and she runs her small escort agency from her home or something. And that's not what the average business looks like at all. Oh, there's so much to discuss here. I just want to mention that. So when it becomes legal, the market absolutely expands. And that drives down prices. So prices are at an all-time low in countries like Germany. And people like to talk about, you know, it's a privilege to see a sex worker, but any man can afford this. Like there is prostitution for everybody. You can, like on the street, it can be as little as five to 10 euros. In the brothel, an average encounter will co cost like 50, 60, 70 bucks. I've heard of these like all-you-can-fuck brothels that it would be like 20 bucks well, I've heard it because you've heard the scrotes and the manager like legit bragging about this, but like brothels that are basically like a buffet, you can pay a cover charge and then you can just have sex until you're done, I suppose. And it's the women have to turn a lot of tricks to make even like their whatever they owe the brothel back, right? Because the brothel takes a fee. These are illegal now in Germany because uh, women were like dropping from exhaustion and there were men queuing outside these brothels. So Germany has even sort of backpedaled on some aspects of, I can name a few more, like, I don't think people realize the amount of cruelty that Johns can legally do to women. So they've now illegalized the advertisement of heavily pregnant women. That was normal. You could even do a, excuse me, a gangbang party with a pregnant woman. What? That's um, unhinged. Or barely legal women in Cologne, there was an, a brothel that was called like the, the teeny, like a teeny brothel. So like women that are 18 or 19 in like schoolgirl outfits. So I mean, there's no limit on pedophilic fantasies or anything of the kind. If a woman is heavily drug addicted, like everyone is considered to be consenting until the individual woman can prove otherwise. And you're only really considered exploited if there is a third party. So a flesh and blood pimp who has you under full control and you really have no autonomy anymore. Like you couldn't leave the premises. They basically expect you to be chained up, which nearly uh, no trafficking victim is. 
And also, I think very important to understand uh, about what the Johns are allowed to do. It was actually legal for a very, very long time to rape a traffic person for money because the idea is it's just a normal service. So if someone's trafficked, let's say, to a nail salon, which does actually happen, and if I get my nails done at a salon and they're trafficked, then I as a customer can't know, so I'm not held responsible. And the idea is that a brothel is the same thing. And therefore, it's not a crime if I, as a John, I go there and I use women, even though they don't speak the language or they got bruises on their bodies. All, all these are things that men readily admit to. I'm not going to get into any trouble because I was just a, a service user and like getting my nails done or sex acts, whatever. It's all the same. And that's how it was legally treated until very recently. But now, how do you actually prove in court that he knew or didn't know or there haven't been a, a large number of prosecutions. Like Johns are still not scared of any consequences. The only time that I see that men are a bit scared is when they encounter minors, which does actually also happen. And I mean, some people are crazy enough from the sex work crowd to suggest they call these underage sex workers. I don't know if you've seen that language. I find that so disturbing. If we go after these uh, men too much, then the child rape will just go underground. And I'm like, is child rape better when it happens? Like when the children are like visible or the young girls, young boys standing on the street, like is that, does that make the crime any less worse? Like there's that too, the connection to, to child abuse, like a third of the women who enter the sex trade enter as minors. So it's a minority, but it, that's a huge group. And many others are survivors of childhood trauma. That's not a stereotype. Like we have clear statistics on that. There's been like a lot of discussion about like who is the sex trade workforce. And it's really hard to track in the United States because obviously it's a transient type job. But quite a few of the people who end up in the sex trade, I think from their best numbers, 30 to 40 percent of them have had contact with the foster care system of some kind. So you're talking about a workforce that is quite literally fed as a pipeline from abused, disadvantaged, neglected children who have been wards of the state in some type of way. So it's kind of scary. And the only reason they know this is because they're basically going by like arrest records. So when people get arrested for drugs or prostitution or something like that, uh, they look at their background and sometimes they're already in the system. So when you look at that, you're like, wow, a huge percentage of like the training ground to be a sex worker is neglect and abuse. That's why the, the idea of like creating like a, a job training or treating this like a, a normal job is absurd is because like the neglect and the abuse and the ability to treat uh, women like disposable objects is something that would only seem normal to a person who's experienced that already. And it's so it's so disturbing because I feel like the sex workers work crowd are trying to normalize the idea that it's it's okay to treat people this way. And they seem woefully naive about what the actual sex trade entails. And the few women who are like privileged enough to, I guess, be like high class call girls are the ones that a lot of times over-focus on, not realizing like that's in no way the the vast majority of the job and the women who are in it who even are the high class quote unquote car girls are still a lot of times being like vastly underpaid for their services and don't aren't really truthful about it until they leave their profession right much like lana rhodes like you know she's a person who could command quite a bit of money as like a high class call girl or whatever but even then a lot of them are maybe making six figures and they can maybe do it for a couple of years and it's not like a profession that the vast majority it's not a level that the vast majority of sex workers will even hope to reach nor is it a situation where they're empowered because often they end up being having to do more and more degrading things to get to keep getting the same amount of money. Yeah, I find that I've read, I think like now probably 100 plus like sh shorter or longer biographies of women who are sex trade survivors. 
Although, I mean, they call themselves survivors because women actually die in this trait all the time, like the mortality rates, even when it's legal from STDs or drug overdose or violence or just chronic illness that's never properly healed. And a lot of women know someone who was killed or nearly killed, like that's normal. And when I read these, I could just swap out some minor details or cities. It could be Berlin. It could be Christchurch. It could be Chicago. These biographies across the globe are so similar. Like maybe there's some details, let's say I'm a woman in India and the caste system or something. But a lot of the time, these stories are so similar. And like now there is a global sex trait survivor movement. And these women can really a lot of time connect with each other because the stories are similar despite like vast geographic distances between them. And I was just going to add this aspect that, again, the population varies where you look at, but the other factor next to like poverty and abuse is also uh, being part of racialized minority. Like in Canada, you know, with missing and murdered indigenous women, vastly overrepresented in the sex trade, US, same native women, black women, uh, women migrating from Latin America. In Europe, we have a huge overrepresentation of Roma women. So this is like one of the poorest, uh, most marginalized community in like all of Europe who are basically a lot of the time outside the regular economy. And the men uh, from this community, they will work like in meat factories. So doing this really traumatizing work, our meat comes from butchering the animals or they'll work in agriculture and the women are staffing our brothels. And this happens and this is intergenerational too. It's not like, okay, so this Roma family sends, you know, one boy in, in the meat factory and one young woman into the brothel and then they can set up their own business and they exit. No, it's like a lot of these women like, this happened to my mother or even my grandmother too. This is not a road out of poverty at all. And there's this like huge racist component as well. In New Zealand, it's, you know, it's Asian women and Maori women, Pacific Islanders vastly overrepresented. And they also, in the advertisements, like we can have this whole conversation about prostitution advertising. Like, I don't need to look at sex trafficking. I just look at the advertising sites. A lot of these women have to advertise themselves according to racist stereotypes. And I can also, if let's say I'm from Romania, if I put in my bio on my sex worker bio that I'm actually Spanish, I will get more money because I'll be, you know, the rarer the wares, the harder to access this group of women is, the more money men will pay. So Romanian is considered cheap. It's Spanish or German, English, French. That'll be high quality. Can I just say how yeah. insane it is to me that like certain countries of women are deemed uh, higher or lower quality? That like the sort of commodification of women, like they're all just human beings, but like the country that they're from is a reflection of their quality, the same that you might like, you know, an inanimate object. What's wild to me is like how they're marketed to different groups of men outside of their country versus the perception of the women of the men in that country. Right. So like if they market it like hot submissive uh, Russian wives to men in the United States. But then if you go to Russia, they're all talking about like, oh, these bitches are too like uppity now. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a completely different. They always like market women from other countries as if they're like exotic and, and like submissive and catering to men. Whereas like men have the perception of the women in their own country as like pedestrian and too feminist. And that's like almost across the board. It's like a circular thing. So if they're advertising, like if it was the opposite in like Russia, it's like, oh, we're going to get brides from like a neighboring country and say like, I don't know, or somewhere like Beirut or something and say all the women in Beirut are hot, submissive and willing and all the bitches in like Russia 
are like uppity feminists and then they're being advertised in the United States as if like they're hot submissive and then like the perception is that they're uppity feminists, that we're uppity feminists in the United States. So like that to me is like a really almost like universal perception. And it's one of the things I learned actually from other FDSers about how, from other women in other countries about how like their stereotype is always being horrible harpies. And then all these women from these other countries are like exotic and amazing, but really they're just trafficked women. (laughs) And that's the only reason why anybody would be submissive to any type of scrout really, who would buy sex orders. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this topic is so huge, you can always go like five different directions. I was going to talk about the submitting to the John. So, I mean, a lot of people imagine in a legal trade, they have this specific agreement, we'll do X, Y, sex acts for this amount of money for this amount of time, and then he'll stick to it. I mean, not only do Johns break these rules, I think it's important like every man who goes to a sex trade establishment should consider, uh, they should know, and a frightening number of them do know about this. It's called the practice that pimps do. It's called breaking in. So that's when the traffickers serially rape women until they won't say no to anything anymore. And some Johns partake in this, the sadist kind. The majority are not sadistic. They just want her to submit and smile. And one way to achieve that effect is this breaking in process. So when she has been broken in, she's given to like the regular non-sadistic Johns who like want the girlfriend experience or whatever, and they will use her and she will never talk back. She'll be too psychologically broken. So sex trait survivor Hushkema always says this, like she just repeats it every time she's in the media platform, sir, which they should do way more often. She says, every John who goes to the brothel, he has no idea why that woman is submitting. She could have been, like I said, serially raped by traffickers. She, it could be poverty. It uh, could be she's hungry. could be a million different reasons. She will always pretend or very often she'll pretend to enjoy it because, you know, then he'll come back. He'll pay more, etc. He won't complain about the service. He'll leave a positive review. Her ads will always say, I love this. I'm a nympho. I just love men, blah, blah, blah. He has no way of telling. So even if we can point, I think, a very small group of women who choose to do this, that John can't know. So how can that decision possibly be ethical? Like every time you go to the brothel or escort agency or street, doesn't matter, you're risking a very, very high risk of accidentally raping somebody. And I was going to say another thing, like I said, we can take this conversation like a million different paths to explain how it's possible that, for example, there's this racist advertising or there's no protection for pregnant women, all these things. It's because and nearly everyone is an independent contractor from a legal perspective. They're not an employee. Like think about OSHA requirements like occupational health and safety. You should be protected from direct contact with bodily fluids. Even just the conversations that Johns have with women, they would be sexual harassment in every other job. But as an independent contractor, a lot of these protections don't apply. So that's how the brothel owners and the Johns get away with a lot of these things. So it's even crazy to think like you're going to have a a labor movement to counteract this when there is on paper, there is no boss. He's just someone renting rooms to her, if that makes sense. Like this gets lost in the conversation as well. And I think it's very important to understand. I'd like to talk more about the safety issues, because that's another thing that I've always found so contradictory with the legalization discourse is that the sort of things that are part of the quote unquote job in prostitution would be considered illegal in any other job. Yeah. So contact with bodily fluids, you know, a lot of sex workers say, oh, you know, I always use condoms and so on. But the reality is when you look at the sex worker forums, you know, that's not always followed or the guy just pays extra to not use a condom, right? You imagine construction worker, for example, like if their boss paid them extra to work 
you know, without a hard hat or without any like safety or PPE or without face protection, like that's illegal in Canada where I'm from, right? You cannot pay workers more money to put themselves in danger. It's just a hard boundary. Like it's illegal no matter how much you pay them. So yeah. Can you talk more about that kind of like, how do you combat that kind of rhetoric or, you know, how have you dealt with that? Because it's really hard to have that conversation with people or they just don't want to hear it. Or they just say like, well, you know, men want to have sex without a condom and, you know, that's just what men want kind of thing. Yeah. So it was actually legal for Johns to not use condoms in Germany until 2017. There was no mandate except like in the more conservative states in the South. So like, excuse me, a gangbang, which I think is a gang rape. You could do that without condoms. This is going to get gross, but there's even these Johns who have a fetish about a woman who has been like pre-cummed they want the semen of the previous man to be in there because, I mean, I know you talked about men's fetishes. It's an endless hellhole. Yeah, cuckoldry. They have a cuckoldry fetish sometimes or I don't know. Like, I know what you mean, but yeah, gross. Yeah, or just wanting the woman to be dirtied up and just have a symbol of her dirtiness, which allows you to treat her however you want. So like I said, condom use wasn't mandatory for a long time. Now it is. But how do you enforce that? So you can check if the brothel has installed a dispenser, but who's to say they actually use it? So it is true that a huge number of condoms go into this industry. I read uh, once that a fourth of the German condom production, a fourth goes into the sex trade. And it is true that, you know, women do try and protect their health as best as they can. So people have the stereotype of the woman who just, excuse me, like whores around and doesn't mind. No, like women are very meticulous about this, but they say a lot of the time it's an active battle with the John to enforce the condom use. Like you said, like uh, men will p just pay extra. And then there's like a brothel and one woman offers it without a condom. All the others are going to be pressured by market competition, not pimps, market competition to also forego condom use. Or a lot of people forget you can get an STI even from oral sex without a condom. So even if it's, you know, used for vaginal and anal, that's not enough. And Johns have been just so used to this. Yeah. And men don't want to get a blowjob with the rubber. Like they actively complain about that. Like they're like, what's the point? So in any other industry, if it's not possible to do the job safely, you don't do the job. You find a way to do it safely or you just don't get the job done. If it's not possible to do it safely, then you don't do it. And I was going to add, like, the reality is if uh, she does catch an STI that's not curable, like AIDS, or there's, I mean, there's a whole horrible range there. A lot of the women cannot afford to take breaks. The same with if they have an intimate injury, like there's all these issues. If you read health reports, like I've read reports by gynecologists that treat women and I had to like stop because I was starting to cry because it's just so horrific. Like I wrote about this on my blog, like the range of health issues that people don't even think about, the way that it can destroy basically everything in your abdominal and genital area is, is at risk. The reality is if she catches a disease, like not only can she often not stop, she'll have to keep going, even if she's in pain. Or like women who've given birth, they go right back uh, a lot of the time. The fact that they're classified as workers, do they get medical leave? You know, if a sex worker is injured on the job, are there worker protections? Like, does she get paid like medical leave, anything like that? So there are some free health services, thankfully, but no, she's an independent contractor. Like unless she has to take care. She doesn't get wage loss. No, she has to take care that like getting an additional insurance to cover things like maternal leave or holiday. There's no holidays, like every risk as an independent contractor. Like we know that there are women without even health insurance in the legal European sex trade, because that's how, how much they slip through the cracks of the system. 
And I was just going to say, then when she actually has an incurable disease, uh, places like Austria, which is quite similar laws to Germany, though a bit more strict, they will just deport her. So instead of helping her, she gets deported back to Romania, Bulgaria, wherever, and that home country can take care of her, which really a lot of these women then end up, you know, desperately poor or homeless back home because there's no infrastructure. That's why they came here in the first place. There's no jobs there. That's so dystopian. I can't believe that there are people actually defending this industry. Like, <laughs> I just wonder if it's just like they buy into everything at a surface level. Cause I have that same reaction too, where I'm like, on what planet is this going to be in, like an empowering industry for women? I notice a lot of times they interview women who, first of all, are like the most privileged out of everybody because they're the ones that are willing to talk to the media, right? And some of them, even the ones that we've talked to casually, it seems like they still come from backgrounds of abuse, but like because they're so used to the abuse, they'll be like, well, some of my Johns treat me nicer than any other man has, right? Which is really, really sad. So like a lot of times it's perception for women who have been not been treated well. So like for them, that is better treatment because they came from a household where they might have been heavily abused, right? Or heavily sexually abused even. So sometimes it's just like the workers who are reporting that this is empowering for them. It's because they come from like extremely, extremely abhorrent circumstances. And also they aren't yet aware of all the ways that they're being coerced. We just did a bonus content about the Playboy Mansion. And also we've seen like uh, the arc of someone like Jenna Jameson, who was a really famous porn star in the 90s. She came out and she said, I thought all this time when I entered the sex trades with my choice, when she started going to therapy, she realized like she was actually trafficked by her older boyfriend at the time when she was like 14, 15. In her mind, she was like, I made the choice to be a porn star when I was 14, 15 and to try to enter the sex trade. But then like in hindsight, she now understands like, no, actually I was plied with drugs by my 20 something year old boyfriend when she was a young teenager and then pushed into this industry so he could make money off me, et cetera. But she didn't realize that until like, you know, years into her career about like the path that led her into getting into the sex industry in the first place. So a lot of times I feel like they don't have the perspective because either they come from extremely horrific backgrounds that are unimaginable. And so then like slightly nice treatment for men might feel like a leg up for them. And then also because they don't yet understand all the ways they're being exploited. And you see a lot of the people coming out of the Playboy Mansions telling the same thing. They left their penniless. They thought they could gain power in that environment and did nothing but have to fuck geriatric old man and get disrespected constantly and blackmailed. So I think they're just not aware. But that's why I think it's important for people to study this to not take that kind of thing at face value the way some people seem to do. Yeah, no, this frustrates me so much. I've seen so much media where they interview a happy sex worker. And then if you actually listen carefully, she will describe really disturbing things. Like I do listen to sex workers all the time. And then they describe something that's legally rape or that's trafficking but they don't recognize it as such. And I know there's a lot of anger around this, like saying that, you know, we're denying women's agency or we're insulting their intelligence. No, I'm just saying that people's normal of what is violence or, or fair treatment varies widely. And most trafficking victims probably don't know they are trafficking victims. Like I said, interviews on live TV where I, because I spent like hours and hours studying the laws and they're so complex, they make my head spin. So like I've had the privilege of a university education and they still make my head spin. And then like these young women out of high school or from abroad, they're supposed to understand the laws. And when a man has, has crossed into the illegal zone in practice, men also get away with so much harm because to the women was just normal. For example, one woman from Australia said like, 
Yeah. So like men come in and they're really coked up and I tell them like, please don't stick a finger in my anus and they just do it anyway. And then I have to, you know, laugh it off. Like women develop all these strategies that I understandably, they get attached to these survival mechanisms of like, I just play it cool. I just laugh about it because you can never hurt his ego. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. That's when you can actually get murdered. Do not hurt his ego. So Whenever he actually assaults you, uh, play it off. Just calm him down carefully, nicely. Never name what actually happened to him or to yourself. I often do compare prostitution to an abusive relationship. Many of us have well, either been that woman or had a friend who was in an abusive relationship and she just couldn't see what was going on. She just could not. She Maybe they lived together. She needed the living space or the partial income or whatever was going on, or they had kids together, or she was just really emotionally attached for whatever reason. And she keeps reporting these disturbing things like, oh, sometimes I don't want to have sex here. And then I acquiesce and we have sex anyway. And as a friend, I'm like, oh my God, that's not okay. Like that's abuse, that's rape. But it takes the victim months or years to realize that's what it was. That's like a very, very normal psychological pattern that basically every abused person has gone through at some stage. And it frustrates me that people can't see that this happens in the sex trade all the time. And that, yeah, I understand like you need to give women time to come to their own conclusions. Like I spend a lot of my time just attacking the Johns and just naming them. Like I don't go up to women and try to lecture them. Like that doesn't help that much because when they do realize that it has been abuse, I want them to be able to come to you know, the social services that are run by, you know, sex trade survivors and feminists that now the women think are the enemy. Those are the swerves, right? But when she needs help, like I want her to know that she can come to us and get support and solidarity and actual services. That's a fantastic approach, by the way. I want to say I really appreciate that. I'm glad that that's your strategy. I try. Like at the end, I still upset a lot of women. Like doing this activism, I'm sure you get this too. There are women who are like, you've saved my sanity or even saved my life. And others are like, you're harming me and or putting me at risk. And uh, you have blood on your hands. Like you get the full spectrum of opinions. Yeah, I definitely do too. Yeah, it's wild to me. Like I said, what bothers me the most is the misrepresentation of sex work critical feminists. I feel like they completely paint people who are critical of sex work as like Christian right fundamentalists who believe like some kind of patriarchal notion that women can't make choices for their own body instead of like the very hard, the very like concrete reasons that we've laid out in this entire episode, why it's a bad idea that have nothing to do with like morality and everything to do with the economics of the situation. And the reality of a very exploitative industry that deals with a lot of abused and exploited people. Yeah, but the misrepresentation of our views is part of the abusive relationship. Because in the same way that an abuser, for example, will say, oh, I don't like your friend, you know, say, you know, a woman's in an abusive relationship and then she goes to her friend for support. You know, her abuser might say, oh, I don't like your friend. She's toxic. She wants to break us up. You know, she secretly hates you. He'll say all these things to try to make her doubt the friends basically like isolate her and prevent her from being able to access support, right? So this idea that Swerfs are, you know, the bad guys, it's the exact same thing. They're trying to turn women away from their support network. Well, I understand that definitely from men, but I don't understand it from feminists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the divide that I don't understand because I totally understand why men would defend this, but like... Women can be flying monkeys for abusers too, unfortunately. Yeah. That's the sad part is like, it's a lot of very prominent feminists who are getting huge microphones, huge media platforms, and like have these big followings. And I'm just like, it's not just that they can disagree with us, it's that they're actively hateful of like sex work critical feminists and say that they're card carrying for the patriarchy. I'm like, well, that's insane. 
I think it's a cope as well because these same, you know, sex workers and these same, you know, sex posi feminists, they will rant about how abusive their job is, like how they can't wait to leave, like how they're saving up to leave. So I think part of it is literally just cope as well, because especially your average sex worker is likely even the so-called choice ones in quotation marks. They're likely there because they either didn't have any other options or they didn't feel like they had any other option but to be a sex worker. Hence the reason why they always compare sex work to minimum wage jobs like, you know, working in a factory. That's their favorite one when it's like, if they felt like they actually had options or if they had options, they would not have chosen sex work because the only jobs they can think of besides sex work is minimum wage jobs. Because like they'll never say like, oh, I used to be a director within Google and I've switched to sex work and I'm so much better off. And none of them ever say that. And I was going to say that that's another thing that comes with legalization. People think it'll be destigmatizing. And I actually think it just changes the stigma up. So and how it works is that the moment that a woman's been hurt in the sex trade or traumatized, then she just wasn't fit for the job. She was in the wrong job and she stayed in it too long. Should have just gone and worked at the supermarket checkout, completely ignoring the fact that there are lots of reasons why women cannot just switch to the supermarket checkout. So these women who are coming in from abroad who barely speak the language, like you need to know German or English to even get these low wage jobs, like they straight up cannot get them. Or just the other thing, a lot of women come out of the sex trade and for years and sometimes their whole life, they cannot work a normal job because of physical and mental health issues. Like, I don't think people realize how many women, if they're lucky, they can get benefits. I know even young women who are so ill, they have to survive on benefits and they just, they stay poor. They come out of the sixth grade poor. They don't have tons of savings and then retire at 35 to a villa. I think that's what a lot of people imagine happens. That basically never happens. Like being in the sixth grade harms, like a lot of the reasons women get in is like they have a student debt or they're victims of loan sharks, or they got an abusive boyfriend who's got gambling debts, and they try to fix that right now. But actually, and then they think like, when I've paid that off, I'll leave. But the way the industry works is you accrue new debts, like the brothel owners. So you got the same in strip clubs. They got all these fees they put on you. So you create new debts. You could be one or two years into the sex trade and your financial situation is worse than before rather than better. So I think I feel like there's a lot of people, we got the empowering narrative and then we get another group that's a little more honest saying, yeah, the sex trade is actually really awful, but you know, it's a bandaid on poverty. Like as long as there's first abolish poverty and then the sex trade. And I see all these ways that prostitution, like I mentioned with the intergenerational situation where like grandmother, mother, daughter, they're all in the sex trade. It actually makes the poverty worse and your chances of working a normal, at least like a job where you're not worried about murder or rape every day, later on, it's going to make that harder rather than easier. Like you're not actually putting down brothel on your resume. That doesn't happen in Germany or New Zealand. So even places where it's completely legal, it doesn't magically get rid of the stigma. Like I've made the argument before, the stigma is by design because men want to be able to treat these women as disposable and to degrade them. That is the product. So trying to make it into like a service provider, I mean, it seemed like it's on the same level of being a therapist. And I've seen that kind of language of like, actually Teen Vogue, if I'm not mistaken, uh, put out a article where they compared sex workers to doctors and said that like for a lot of sex workers, they provide a service to underserved populations. Like they made that connection. It was really, really insane then. 
But it's like, that's the pipe dream for liberal feminists that somehow these women are going to become respected workers of society. But the truth of the matter is, is that men want the stigma. They want the degradation. The point is the disposability of this women. If this wasn't, then they would just date women like normal and treat them like human beings and try to have sex. No, the point is that they don't have to respect anything about these women. It's transactional. I was going to add to that. Actually, the idea that women are kind of therapists is very dangerous. What it culminates in is we got some prisons and these mental health facilities where convicted rapists like sex offenders are housed doing these experiments in Germany with so-called sexual therapy, uh, hiring women in prostitution to have sex with these men to teach them how to not rape. So I just want people to understand, like, if the pro women in prostitution is a therapist, like, these are confirmed cases. This is not rumors. This actually happens. It's not, like, huge uh, scale, like, not s tens of thousands of cases, but this shouldn't be happening at all. Like, this is treating women in sex trade as rape fodder. But if your expertise is, you know, calming down men's aggression, if that's your therapeutic function, that is the logical consequence. And I think many might have heard of the case in Canada where this man who murdered his girlfriend was let out on parole. I believe it was also for like a therapeutic function. The prison staff signed off on him going to completely illegal brothels because, I mean, uh, Canada has the Nordic model. So like an illegal massage parlor brothel where he then, then killed a woman while out on day parole. Like this can only happen when the prison staff thinks, yeah, this is a, the brothel is a healing place which sounds really good on paper, but these are the logical outcomes of that thinking. Again, that's very dystopian. The more we talk about prostitution, the more dystopian and horrifying it sounds. I didn't hear about that case, but I, I mean, I'm Canadian. I'm like, going to go Google that because holy shit. And also on the subject, a lot of people defend the sex trade. Like right now, there's a campaign I mentioned in the south of Germany, people are a bit more conservative, more Catholic. You know, the place where we have Oktoberfest is also where, like, you know, the wealthy Catholics live. And a lot of the rules there are stricter around the sex trade. And But there's now a campaign to get rid of a lot of these no-go zones so that we actually still have prohibitionist zones across the country, especially in the South, where you can still be fined and arrested for selling sex. So they're, like, finding and arresting, like, these homeless Bulgarian women. It's horrific. So I actually oppose the punishment of the women. But the punishment on the Johns keeps it down a little bit. And now the argument of the pro-prostitution lobby as to why they need to expand the legal zones is because men in wheelchairs are having a hard time getting to these brothel zones. And there's so much wrong with this. We could probably talk just an hour about the ableism in that. Because actually the statistics show that a huge number, like the rates of disabled men in uh, relationships is actually roughly the same as able-bodied people. It's not that much less. Like a lot of these men can get a date and do want an actual relationship, not a 30-minute quick, you know, blowjob or something. I really hate this, like, this thread of uh, thinking that men not getting their penis touched is a tragedy that society needs to solve. That is actually the craziest thing I've ever heard. And actually, we just uh, did a, a roast of a politician that was trying to make a similar argument that they try to make it seem like men not having sex is some kind of like societal problem we have to solve instead of like an individual thing that they need to figure out. Like you need to figure out how to make yourself sexually desirable 
to women if you want to have sex. But instead of that, they'll say like, well, what about this guy? He has no arms and no legs and he can barely breathe. And so he can't go get women. Don't do you want him to go around in life with no, his penis not being touched and like hope that elicits like sympathy from people, which is like pretty insane, like you said, because it is like there is a lot of inherent ableism as if like there's not other people who would date people who are disabled and other women who are disabled who would also date this person. But there's like zero sympathy for the women who might have to service anybody like would have to service anybody who could be a jerk or disgusting or you know a guy in prison who probably shouldn't procreate or be touching women because that's actually part of the deal that's why we put you behind bars because it's supposed to be a punishment right like so they have this overwhelming amount of sympathy for the men and them not having their penis touched but like zero for what kind of women and what kind of circumstances the women would be put into in that type of situation yeah so prostitution can be so damaging that women end up permanently disabled, but I've never heard that spoken about. Like the intersection of prostitution disability is always about men and their penises. And there's so many really uh, horrible ethical issues around this. So for example, we've got something called like sexual assistance in old people's homes or disabled people's homes. And there's a difference between saying, okay, we've got a disabled person and they need assistance to have sex with their partner. Uh, I don't know the details of how that works, but that's sort of often conflated with prostitution. and But yeah, we've got this routine practice of actually sending a woman from the brothel or escort service into a care home. And sometimes these women report, you know, this disabled man or this man with dementia, I'm not even sure he wants to have sex. Like, okay, so he did have an erection, but an erection is not consent. Like, he's nonverbal. How am I supposed to know what he wants? Like, there are these carers of disabled and demented men deciding oh, he seems a sexual person because he, like, he gets an erection or maybe he has harassed the female staff. Therefore, we got to send someone in. But this is not even sound consent on the part of the John in that scenario. And also this, like, we got to protect the female nurses. Like, all of this always goes back to this very, very, very ancient mentality of prostitution as a place that absorbs male aggression and that'll prevent rape for other women and there's this quote attributed to Thomas Aquinas where he says like the brothel is like the palace sewer, right? It's disgusting, but necessary. And really, if you ask people who live around brothels, you will learn that actually the violence spills out from the brothels. So like, I mean, you got these curb crawling areas like Leeds in the UK is very infamous for this. I think they shut it down now, but they had this tolerance zone. This is one of the poorest parts of all of the UK where um, like high school girls going to school are being curbed crawled, which is frighteningly common experience. So like the local communities, like nobody wants a brothel in their neighborhood because actually the pimps will spill out of the brothels, the drunk or coked up Johns will too. They'll go home to their families and reenact a lot of that stuff on their wives. That's the next horrible thing. Or just their sexual expectations in general are going to be warped by their experiences in the sex trade, which is why I think this is a lot of people say, you're not a sex worker, so shut up. And I'm like, but I've been propositioned by landlords. So this issue does very much affect me. And it affects all women as well. I think that is quite a redundant argument as well, because if you think about it, it's you don't have to necessarily be part of something to have an opinion. So the people, for example, advocating for people who work, who are being exploited in factories owned by Nike, they've not been a factory worker. So that's also really redundant. But generally speaking, as women, the sex trade does impact all women, you know, whether they are in 
the sex trade or not. So if they've been propositioned, like I've been propositioned as well, you know, a man on Reddit several years ago when I was, you know, first beginning to use the site asked if he could buy my nudes, for example, and I was really, really young. And it also bleeds into, because it also feeds, you know, that male entitlement that Roe was talking about when they are entitled to sex, because even though I completely abhor the idea that sex workers should be receptacles for undesirable, unwanted, unattractive men, I don't think that should be the case at all. But then that ideology and that misogyny, it also carries over to women who are not sex workers as well. Yeah, so like a lot of feminists have said, the treatment of women in prostitution is kind of a litmus test for society. If you want to see how misogynistic and violent it really is, see how it treats like the most vulnerable women, which are going to be women in the sex trade, like the most murdered women on the planet, then yeah, you'll see uh, where society is really at in terms of equality. And yeah, if we want to continue on the road of the effects that spill out, like I've read these reports from men saying even just hearing an Eastern European accent makes him sort of hot. He finds that titillating because so many of the women in the brothel are in Europe are from that area. Well, really, Eastern European women are trafficked globally at this stage. So even just hearing the accent, so how is the, you know, let's say I'm an office worker and I'm a John and I got this colleague from Bulgaria, how's she ever going to be equal on the job if I look at her and I just see prostitute? Or speaking of office jobs, like now men are holding, like some brothels have conference rooms where like businessmen can get together and discuss things. I mean, anyone business knows that a lot of the important deals are made in the back room, like at the after party, a lot of the connections, like these are really important. And just the fact that they take place at brothels means an implicit exclusion of the female uh, colleagues and workforce. And I mean, I think strip clubs have that same function globally and brothel is kind of a step up from that. And yeah, I think we're never ever going to get rid of the mentality of men saying like, I paid for the date or I paid for the trip or I, I gave you a gift. I helped you move like whatever makes men think they're entitled to access to a woman. We're like, we're never ever ever getting rid of that mentality if it's normal for men to just have the sex trade around, whether that be nude images, which I think is already damaging and objectifying and dehumanizing enough or full on flesh and blood access to another person that yeah, will never end that with the trade around like it's necessary uh, for all our, our safety and equality and liberation for that to go. I mean, so just to finish off then the episode before we get to the roast of the Johns, I'm looking forward to that bit. But so what do you think are some practical tips that our listeners, that we as women, people in our lives can do to progress the abolition of the sex trade globally? So I know this issue seems really daunting because it's so huge and it affects so many people. And like, for example, helping women exit the sex street is actually very complicated. That can be a month, a year long process and cost quite a lot of money because women need so many different services like uh, childcare and homes and a detox and psychotherapy, so many things. But like one thing that you can do is there is now an international abolitionist movement. So that's sex trade survivors, psychologists, doctors, social workers, people with lots of different expertise working together. And there are a lot of local organizations. So I check out in the area if people want to do something on the subject, check what's in the areas. There a support service, a support group, or just a, a lot of these projects start with just, it's very grassroots, like just a group of women getting together and discussing what's the prostitution scene in our city? Do women have any services? Do we have contacts with like at city hall where we could do something, set something up, start something? And people can 
can bring different kinds of expertise to the table, right? Survivors have their expertise, social workers have theirs. I figured I'm not made to be a social worker. I'm more of a communicator or I make media pieces. So everyone's skills have a place in that effort. I think maybe start with figuring out like what's the situation like, what's going on here and informing, connecting. And then you figure out where can I use my skills. And it's a very difficult year-long battle to change laws. And then when you have the laws, you have to fight for implementation. Like women in Sweden, Norway, Iceland, all these places with the Nordic model are still fighting for implementation. And we can see Canada as a place that sadly really lacked implementation. Like you have to then, when you have the law, like actually force the police, force the social workers to actually implement. But even before that, there's a lot you can do locally. Like, for example, like I mentioned in the south of Germany, we're trying to get women decriminalized. So they're not at least not going to be fined anymore for trying to survive. So kind of have these incremental steps towards the Nordic model rather than advocating for the whole law, approach it slowly. And there's a lot you can do locally because so much depends on local authorities. If you can even have be in a country with prohibition, like most of the US, if you can convince the local state's attorney or whoever to not prosecute the women, but keep prosecuting the men, like that's a step that you can take. And I think as well, from a gender dynamics perspective, we just have to make it more costly for men who choose to buy sex or watch porn and just dish out you know, societal consequences. So refuse to date them, you know, call them out on it when they are, you know, when they're talking about it. I find that can be quite effective because, you know, men, if they're talking about, you know, sex workers, just act disgusted because it is disgusting what they're doing and just, you know, dish out, you know, social consequences in that way and also celebrate when they get scammed by escorts as well, which is what I do. Yeah, you can always start at the dinner table and just talk to family and friends. A lot of people will be uncomfortable. These conversations aren't easy. And I mean, the thing that I have to warn people about, you will find out that a bunch of men you know are Johns. And you have to be mentally prepared for that. It could be your close relative or partner, ex-partner, friend, colleague. I think like those conversations in your real life, like that's a start. And, and as a lot of men say, the thing they're most afraid of with the Nordic model is not necessarily the fine. Okay, that's more money. He's got excess money anyway. That's why he's buying sex. It's actually getting a letter from the authorities that his wife or girlfriend at home might open or that maybe his boss is going to be informed about this. And in parts of Scandinavia, men can actually like lose their jobs. Like even celebrities, there was this, you know, the Twitter account, uh, John's Posting L's profile picture is this Swedish boxer who was super famous uh, for a long time. But then he had this scandal. It was found out he was like abusing Romanian women for money. And he just lost everything, his like his girlfriend, his job. And these are the most important consequences. So actually men's aggression and entitlement can absolutely be contained if we have these social consequences. Oh, I love that. I didn't actually know who that person was. <laughs> That's like the ultimate L and good for him. Well-deserved. Okay, let's roast some Johns. Okay, so the roasting of Johns. So honestly, this is one of my favorite pastimes, even though I'm not really on Reddit actively anymore, but I like to go over to where the sugar daddies are and where the, the hobby is. So there's hierarchies of Johns, you know, your garden variety, John, who's just, who is basically still a scrote because he's paying for sex and exploiting women. And then you have the hobbyists who literally are basically like a John, but are a lot more sadistic and shitty. They are the Johns that are thinking of forming unions to drive down the prices of sex workers. They are the Johns that will stealth women. They are the Johns that will basically try to 
extract labour, in quotation marks, from sex workers and not pay or pay extremely little. So they're real pieces of shit. And there is a Twitter account called John's Posting L's that basically posts the L's from several Johns. I think for me, I mean, generally speaking, I'm not obviously a fan of people being scammed, but when a John gets scammed out of money, so when he has to pay a deposit and the sex worker doesn't deliver for whatever reason, it just makes me so happy. And I have absolutely zero sympathy for them. And what makes me even happier is that because of the system that these men have created, they don't really have any recourse as well. Obviously, I still feel bad for these women having to engage with them at all. But yeah, John's getting scammed makes me really happy. And that Twitter account is basically full of accounts from men who've either been scammed, who've either felt degraded in quotation marks by having to pay for sex, even though nobody told them to pay for sex, basically being victimised by their own sadistic sexuality. It's just a great case of, is it schadenfreude? Is that the word? Is, is it schadenfreude, the German word? Schadenfreude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. It just makes my heart sing. Great word, by the way. The German language has some fantastic words. They have the best words, honestly. But yeah, I could talk about like hobbyists and Johns all day, but I think that could be a part two episode because that is something that is again missed in the discourse around should we legalize sex work? You know, sex work is empowering, is, you know, the words of the Johns and you know, the way in which they actually see these women. Because the weirdest thing to me is that the men who are buying sex are not even hiding the way that they feel about these women. But the dominant discourse within society is that sex work is work. You know, if it wasn't, you know, as you said earlier, really, that if it wasn't illegal, then it would be a respectable profession when the people buying it clearly have no respect for the women involved. Absolutely none. And that's the appeal for them as well. They will literally say the reason why I go to a sex worker is that I can do to her what I can't do to a real, in quotation marks, woman. Should we read out? Did you want to read out some of these? Like a few short ones? Okay, so this one was from a, a sugar baby uh, site. And this John <laughs> said, just drove 90 minutes and into another state to get scammed. <laughs> So I met a potential sugar baby at a, a Panera Bread. Is that a restaurant, Ro, in the United States? I don't know what Panera Bread is. Yeah, a Panera Bread. <laughs> yeah, Panera Bread is like a fast casual, uh, fast casual bakery. It's like a pretend bakery. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's basically the same bread you get from Subway, but they like make it into little shapes. So we pretend like it's fancy here. Okay. Okay. So bearing in mind, this guy characterizes... It's no real butter or anything like that. <laughs> okay. So basically it's, it's a cheap restaurant, a cheap bakery, basically. Yeah. So this is a potential sugar daddy who is meeting a, a sugar baby for the first time at Panera Bread. And he says, uh, you know, she was a beautiful girl. She was sweet, engaging and stunning. Uh, we were having a great convo. I felt like the vibe was great. They always do. Uh, she had made it clear before meeting that we would meet here, then go back to her place on the first date. And I would agreed upon amount here and the other half at her place. Most people who try to scam me don't bother actually meeting up. They want me to cash at them. And I thought it was fine. She had to get up from our table to go to the bathroom sometime. She <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't believe how stupid this guy is. Anyway. And so she had to get up from our table to go to the bathroom sometime after she got her first half. And then I never saw her again. Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say, actually, I just want to say, first of all, as a former, as someone who, who dabbled in sugar babying, taking your date to Panera Bread as a first date, like, really, you deserve to get scammed, honestly. 
Exactly. A hundred percent. That should have been the first red flag. It's the Starbucks of bakeries where it's it's too expensive for the quality. Yeah, but this guy's supposedly like a sugar daddy. Like he didn't even like come correct with like a restaurant or somewhere, you know, more upscale. I completely support this woman. I think she absolutely did the right thing. I like the future faking aspect of it. And yeah, he also, the fact that he wasted his own time, drove an hour and a half into a different state only to be scammed. (laughs) Anytime I hear of a man getting scammed, robbed or beat up because he was trying to meet a prostitute and it turned out to be like an ambush robbery, I'm happy inside. I actually think that that strategy would be like robbing sex buyers, I think is a much better strategy for eliminating prostitution than legalization. (laughs) It's true. I think there need to be stronger deterrence. Like I think that, although unfortunately I think that there probably would be some unintended consequences, like, you know, the men that want to see these sex workers would probably do so under much more abusive circumstances. But for the general population, the general male population, I do think they need to be scared straight. They need to like hear so many stories of women, you know, scamming them in the context of prostitution to make them too scared to see a prostitute. That's the only solution I can see. Stealing their kidney and selling it on the black market. Yeah. Like, even if they're not even true, we need to, like, spread a bunch of urban legends about, like, prostitutes stealing your kidneys. Or just, like, draining your bank account. Yeah. And then when a guy gets scammed, just be like, well, what were you thinking? Like, you know what it's like. You know, you were asking for this by going to see a prostitute. So you deserve it kind of thing. Like, we should just gaslight them. Yeah. I'm all for that. Cardi B straight up said that when she was a stripper and she needed extra money, she used to lure guys in with the promise of prostitution, uh, drug them and rob them. Queen, I support that completely. Right, exactly. And everyone's like, this is horrible. This is on the level of Bill Cosby. I'm like, not really. This is prostitution is illegal. And uh, she didn't rape them. She just robbed them. Vigilante justice. I consider her like Robin Hood, honestly. Like Cardi B is like morally the same as Robin Hood in my mind. And also, what about the fact that the guy clearly had no issues with exploiting her, like sexually? They were only the victim when they got robbed. Yeah, I'm here for Cardi B and any other sex worker who does that. If it's fine that Jay-Z stabbed his own brother and we still celebrate him as a great rapper. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Oh my God. Oh yeah. There's a lot of these rappers that are have been involved in nefarious criminal activities, but suddenly they want to find their morality because of Cardi robbing somebody. That sounds kind of insane, right? Like the double standard never ceases to amaze me. And like I said, yeah, if, if men thought participating in the sex trade was a lot more dangerous, they would perhaps be deterred from participating. And I have also looked at what John say from the US, so like from American John forums, and I find a lot more scam stories over there than here in Germany. Like quite a lot of like, she wants me to pay up front. Oh, okay, let me do that. And then she's poof, gone. And I did enjoy reading that, but I don't want to be too depressing. Like the bar that John's have for considering themselves scammed is very, very low. Like her not smiling, scam. Like her not moaning, scam. And the German Johns on their forums, they have a term for women. They call them rip off cunts, like abbreviated to like, R-O-C, well, the German equivalent of that. And like for the smallest lack of service, they'll like ask for money back or complain to the pimp. Or there's one case, documented case of a man actually taking a woman to court for not giving her a, him an orgasm. And he won that case and she had to pay him back money. And like abolitionists crowdfunded, survivors crowdfunded to pay her expenses. So like prohibition is horrible in a lot of ways when the authorities do go after the women. They don't always do that in practice, thankfully. Yeah, because of it's such a shady industry, there is more scamming. 
I also find like when I was in Germany, I found Germans to be strangely very law abiding, you know, like things like, you know, you don't cross the street unless it says that you can cross the street kind of thing. And like Germans always thought I was crazy for not following rules. But I found that the Germans are very like strict about rule following, which culturally I just did not understand. And so I feel like in the context of prostitution, I feel like that like need for rule following would be potentially very abusive because if they go into that interaction thinking like, I am exchanging 50 euros and you will provide me with good service. Like, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and in their mind, they're like, oh, she doesn't smile. She doesn't give me like, in their opinion, 50 euros worth of service. Then they feel like they've been robbed or scammed or, you know, in, in their perception. Right. I think that German culture could use a bit more like chaos. I don't know. I just feel like maybe this isn't translating well, but like, you know, I feel like in a culture that's very rule following, like I almost feel like the stigma around being a sex buyer should, in order for to like combat some of that, like the stigma around being a sex buyer needs to increase like massively. And so that like, even if it's legal, it's like, you're still a piece of shit and you're still like, quote unquote, breaking the rules or you're still like going against kind of the quote unquote rules in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, like a lot of people say, like, there's no point in changing the law, men will do it anyway. And not only do I not think so, we do have some surveys where you ask them, and the bar to make them stop is actually quite low. Like I mentioned, a letter home, or a fine, a little note on their record. And I see that on the forums too. Like, this is a very brief quote from a man. This is like back in 2015. So unfortunately, we're not quite there yet, but we're inching closer and closer. This guy says, it's just a matter of time until we get Swedish laws over here. If it comes to that, I'll quit the punting life. Welcome back, my hand. So actually, every guy has a hand, like he can take care of it himself. There's no need for this industry. Like that's the other thing that's, I sorry, I keep switching between some of this is funny, but a lot of it is very dark and depressing. Like we are literally sacrificing women's and like some young men and uh, children's lives for male orgasms. How insane is that? You know, people do die in things like construction and we don't need, you know, football stadiums in Qatar. I'm against that too, but we do need housing and we need to make construction as safe as possible, but we do not need orgasm, you know, facilitating institutions for men. I actually wanted to, Ellie, I had another idea I wanted to bounce off of you. I I posted a tweet about this a while ago about how I think that here's maybe a good solution for the Germans who are law abiding, there should be a registry for sex buyers. So like, I don't know if you saw that tweet, but like, you know, in order to purchase sex legally, like you would have to apply for like, essentially a driver's license as like a sex buyer. And that if like, there's uh, a system in which basically like, the sex workers could like file complaints and that would be on like their record that would carry them around. And anytime they wanted to get used sexual services, they'd have to use that license and that would pop up. Do you think that that would do anything? Well, I would love that. I prefer that to the current model because since a few years, it's actually the women who have to register and carry around a piece of plastic that says I'm a prostitute. So I actually agree with the pro prostitution lobby that that's not fair and not helpful because they can actually screen out the abused women from the very few who who choose it. There are some escort agencies that have that system. They have like client lists. And I know about this because women still get murdered and they just, they can identify the killer quicker, but like that is not enough to stop violence. Not a client list. I mean, like a government registry and that information is publicly available. So that here's the other thing is I would want a system in which like we can look up a guy's like 
name, for example, you know, if you do like a background check on someone and you can see if someone has a criminal record, you can do a background check on someone and find out if they have a history of visiting prostitutes. And like, it's not illegal. They're following the law completely. But like, I do think that that should be like publicly available information and that should be like a stigma. And like, in order for them to access sexual services, that there needs to be a record of that. Like, I think like, I would love a system where like, say I'm married and I want to just like see if my husband's been seeing prostitutes. I can just like look up his name on some kind of like public registry and be like, oh yeah, last Tuesday he went to this brothel down the street and have that be like public information. I would love that, but I don't think that's ever going to happen because the anonymity is a huge part of the appeal. Like men would not comply with this. Very, very few would. But why wouldn't they? Is it because they want to commit crimes? Is it because they want to break the law? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think you need to sort of like each country is unique. You kind of have to use like a sort of strategy that's going to work based on the culture. I find like Germans are very law abiding. Having a system of laws that would like, you know, deter them from that might be something worth looking into. No, I mean, that would be great. But anonymity is so important to these men. Like, you know, the high time for buying sex is the lunch break. Like men go during work or directly after work because that's an automatic alibi because so many of them have women at home. But I would love like feminists to have like almost like a troll political campaign where they start to campaign for this. And then the men would complain about it and then have the feminists be like, why do you want the anonymity? Like, why do you want to keep this a secret? Why do you want to cheat on your wife? And basically like use their own system of law abiding against them. Does that make sense? No, it does. Like maybe as a mock campaign, but as an actual policy, the only way that we could, you know, Germany is actually very heavy on like data protection and all that stuff. So we would have to argue like, why are they on this registry if they're getting a legal service? There's no actual legal argument there. Mm. Okay. Okay. It's something might be worth exploring. I wish, I wish I was German in Germany so that I could like have a troll camp. I want to move to Germany just so I could have this troll campaign. You know what I mean? I have kind of a related question. So how do women react to the fact that sex buying is legal in your country? I mean, I have to imagine affects like the dating market, right? Like are women, is it just sort of a normal accepted practice that some guys that you'll date have visited prostitutes or is it still stigmatized when you date? Oh, it's a very, very complicated space. So like I mentioned, like most men still don't feel comfortable telling people. I think you'll have a higher chance of getting a German man to like be interviewed and even have his picture in the paper saying, yeah, I'm a John. Like those men do exist, but I still think that's a minority. A lot of women don't disapprove of the industry necessarily. Like they think it keeps rapists away from them. I hear that all the time from very young women. But then if they found out their partner was doing this, they would still be bothered. Like women are in this very complicated headspace of like, yeah, it's okay, but I wouldn't want to do it. And I wouldn't want my partner involved in it. And I think a lot don't, the statistics that I know is like 23, 24% of German men have bought sex in their lifetime. So every fourth man, and most women don't know this. And it's just not part of their daily life and their daily thinking, unless they live next to the brothel next door. And I mean, that's another thing that people should know. The average brothel is not like this huge neon sign building. It's actually a normal apartment in a normal residential building, uh, like an apartment brothel. So you could actually have a brothel next door and not know unless maybe a coked up John rings your doorbell. So, but I think a lot of women are sort of pushing it down, pushing it aside. And we are just very slowly, there are these women emerging who are like the wives who have been cheated on and the girlfriends and the harm from that to their physical and mental health. But they're not really yet a public voice. Like 
there's a lot of really cruel jokes about that. And some do enter this mentality of when they're not broken up yet, like, okay, so to keep my man, I'll have to sexually compete and I'll have to give him the at-home brothel. Yeah, this is very sad stuff. I think my understanding is most women would actually be upset about this and a lot of them would break up. So it's not so normalized that be like, oh, that's cool. Like, I just gave birth. So I understand like he has needs. Like, thankfully, we're not. That attitude isn't normal. Okay. So it's not normal for committed relationships, but it would be a deal breaker if you were dating someone and he revealed he used a prostitute. Because I feel like here, because it's clearly illegal, the vast majority of women walk away from any men who even had a hint that he did visit a a sex worker versus like if maybe one quarter of the population of men in Germany have done it, is it considered much more of a deal breaker on dating such that men would not bring it up? I don't think men would bring this up. Like, I think it's still a deal breaker, but I don't have like statistics on that. I would love really detailed opinion research on this. The opinion research I do know of is that most Germans, like 60% do think the sex trade is overwhelmingly exploitative. So I think there's more disapproval than approval. And men would hide that very well, most of the time. I hope it wasn't too all over the place, because like I said, there's so many paths to go down with this issue. No, I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much, Ellie. And it was absolutely worth coming back. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely scope for a part two at some point, for sure. Should I plug my stuff as well? Uh, if people want to find me, they can find me as Ellie Arrow. So that's Ellie with an E, an arrow as an arrow and bow. And if you find me on Twitter at Ellie Arrow, you can find my link tree and then you'll see my blog. All of that's in English and uh, my YouTube channel and also links to websites uh, from the German prostitution survivor movement. So blogs from women uh, survivors sharing their experience and their political analysis, as well as the John Quote projects. They're all there. Alrighty. So that's our show. Check us out on the website if you want to discuss this episode on thefemaledatingstrategy.com forward slash forum. Also check us out on Twitter at femdatstrat and our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy for a weekly bonus content. And you could submit a roast to and talk to us about this episode on the Discord. You can also follow us on Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, Queens. And for all you Johns out there, I don't care if you get robbed. Die mad. Die mad.